Exodus 13, verse 3, it says this. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you out into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. He goes on in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning, as we engage with your word, as we dig into your word, I ask that you would help to build and shape our minds, to actually renew our minds in line with what it is that you desire. Father, we have learned ways of operating in the world. Our world has taught us so much, but, but it seems here in, the, in these words, in this passage that uh, we encountered this morning, that you actually want to form and shape our minds. Form and shape the, the things that we see, the things that we do, the things that we think. And so, Lord, we are reliant on you to do that even here this morning, whether we are at home or worshiping here physically, all of us, Lord, we come to you asking, would you shape our minds in the way that you desire? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's passage. You know what? This morning we are actually starting a new series in Exodus. So we worked our way through the plagues and now we are watching the Israelites as they start to make their way out of Egypt. They're working their way out. And so I want you to understand what happens and what we're even looking at with this series. We're looking at the Hebrew identity and how it has fundamentally changed. The Hebrew identity has fundamentally changed from people who were slaves in Egypt to people who have been freed by God. 
from people who are poor to people who are now prosperous, from people who were aimless to people who are now purposeful. Like all of these things have changed about them. And in this series, we're going to track them as they begin moving out of the land of Egypt. And they become literally, they start taking their steps, their next steps towards becoming a nation. But there's like a really significant reality that we need to consider. Uh, Who are these people? How have they been shaped? How have they been formed? Well, they spent the last 430 years being a labor force in Egypt. They, all they knew is kind of the work that they did. They have very little structure in their society. There's, there's nothing really established for who they're supposed to be. And, and, and this, is, this comes just from 430 years of them being told that they are beasts, that they are like subhuman, that they just exist to serve the needs of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so there's an important question here as we start working our way through. It's how is God actually going to start shaping and reforming the cultural identity of these people? Because for 430 years, they've been told that they were less than human. And they've been operating in that way. How how does he actually... Yes, they, they have been saved, but how does he actually get it into their hearts and into their minds that they are, in fact, saved? How does he get it into their hearts that they're no longer subhuman, but they're actually citizens now? So, so the unanswered question that, that kind of I want us to walk through the passage this morning is this. Uh, how does God plan on shaping these people into the kind of people that will be a blessing? Because remember, that's the promise of Abraham. The promise of Abraham was, hey, you're going to get kids and you're going to get a land. But also then when you go to that land, you are going to be a blessing. So when you go to this land, like how is God actually going to shape these people into people who will be a blessing? And and so as we discuss this, it should actually open your eyes into how God intends for you to be a blessing. How God is actually going to shape you into the kind of person that will actually be a blessing in your spheres of influence. So Exodus 13, it begins to answer this question for us. How will God shape these people into people that will be a blessing? So Exodus 13, 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Moses starts out, the first words that he has to say, the first word that comes out of his mouth is remember. You know what, Moses is, he's getting ready to pass on some actions to the Israelites. He's getting ready to tell them some things that they need to do and some things that they need to keep doing and some things that they need to repeat. But, but before he passes on any of that stuff, he frames the whole discussion with this word, remember. Like before he gives those actions, he, he sets up and he says, hey, you have some things that you need to remember. Like Moses, when he's stating these things, and actually we looked at these things last week as we examined the Passover, as we examined the consecration of the firstborn. Like these are things that God commanded Moses. Moses is simply passing on the message. But before he passes on the message, he states kind of God's goal with establishing these things. God wants you to remember. Why? Why does he do that? Well, the, the idea that we're working with this morning, and really the main point this morning is this. What you memorialize shapes who you become. What you memorialize shapes who you become. So what do I mean by memorialize? Well, we'll actually come back to that a little bit later. But first, I want to address the general idea of our memories and the ability of our memories to actually like shape who we are. So, so I read... Uh, 
an article from the American Psycho- Psychological Association. And so, so this article presented this ga- groundbreaking truth, like unbelievable, right? Our memories actually impact the way that we interact with the world around us. Like this is no surprise to anybody, right? Like we actually, like how we remember things shapes the way that we interact with people. So when we talk about the idea of people who are operating out of baggage, What we're really saying is those people have some hard memories from their past and they're responding to other people like they would respond to those hard memories. And so so psychologists, what they have done and what this article indicated is that they've really placed memories into two categories. There are declarative memories and procedural memories. So I want to talk about declarative memories first and what do I mean by that. So, So declarative memories are events, timelines, details, information. So, so this is where you make a conscious decision to like, I am going to access something in my mind, something that I know from my past, and I'm going to try to remember that. It's a, it's a very active process. This is, uh, you are aware of and intentionally accessing these memories, these details, these things that happened before. So those are declarative memories. Procedural memories are learned skills, language, emotional response. Uh, Procedural memories, you don't have to actively work to access. Actually, your subconscious mind accesses these procedural memories. So so this is uh, you riding a bike. Like, uh, so there was a period of time I did not ride a bike for, I think we were somewhere around 10 years. 10 years, I had not ridden a bike. And then I got on a bike, and amazingly, I just knew how to do it. Right? Because that had kind of been wired into my muscle memory. I knew how to do it. Uh, same with like playing an instrument. I play a lot of instruments. Uh, I, when I was in college, I played in the, the wind band. And I can tell you today, like, I, you have to learn your scales, right? For playing these instruments, you have to learn how to play all your scales. I could still uh, tell you, I played baritone. I could tell you the fingerings for every single scale. And I would just do it. Like, I don't have to think about it. I just do it because it's wired into to my muscle memory. This is Mr. Miyagi. This is Mr. Miyagi saying, wax on and wax off, right? Paint the fence, like this sort of thing. Like you, you kind of learn how to, these things are going to be wired into your muscle memory. Now this moves just beyond physical skill. It's not just physical skill, but it's actually like, it's how you experience things. It's how you experience certain events. So, so you like, sometimes you actually respond to certain events emotionally one way or the other because your brain is subconsciously accessing events that happened to you in your past and then it's telling you to respond that way. It's telling you this is how you should respond because of what's happened in your past. And you don't have to think to do this. Your brain already has a pathway to doing this. This is how it works. And so so procedural memory, you could actually just call it cognitive muscle memory. It's kind of like the muscles of your brain that have been built in a certain way to to form these pathways. And so there are two significant ways that these memories get formed. The first way is the repetition. This is the wax on, wax off. This is riding your bike multiple times so that you remember how to do it again. This is uh, playing the scales over and over and over again so it doesn't like leave my fingers. That's, what, uh, that's the repetition piece. But then the other thing that forms kind of our cognitive muscle memory, these procedural memories, is powerful experiences. Like powerful experiences can actually uh, do something to our minds to actually like. So, so let me give you an example of this. Uh, when I was um, 
uh, kid growing up in the church, I went to a church camp. And you know at church camp you have like these uh, special moments where you, you, there's worship in the evening and like, and then you have somebody come and like share the word with everybody and it's like this really like intentional moment where you're getting away with God. Well, uh, the morning, the next morning, I would always be the first person in my dorm or in my cabin or whatever to wake up. And so I would always go outside and just sit with the Lord and like talk to him and have a conversation with him. And there's something about that, that morning experience where I'm out in the middle of nature, like the sun is shining or coming up over the horizon, the wind on my face. There's something about that experience. Like it's only happened to me three times, but I can tell you like every time I am just out in nature, I have this like instant connection to God because of those experiences, because I just have this instant awareness of God's presence when I'm out in nature. And it's because of those experiences that I had. Like these were powerful experiences. I didn't repeat them all that much, but they were so powerful that they wired this reaction inside of me. And so, uh, so why do we talk about all of that? What is happening here? You know what, Moses, and his, in framing his discussion, he's actually getting ready to set up for the Israelites a repeated action or several repeated actions that they're going to do again and again and again. And then he starts it all with a call to remember, which means that he recognizes the need to reshape the cognitive muscle memory of these Israelites because, you know what, the first generation, they had the powerful experience. Like the generation coming out of Egypt, they saw the mighty hand, the strong hand of the Lord pull them out of Egypt. They saw the Lord do all these things. They had the powerful experience, but the later generations, they won't have had that experience. And so there needs to be something set up to help them remember, to help them hold on to what happened. They'll need the repetition. And so he's recognizing what, what they memorialize is actually going to shape who they become. So Moses, he's going to give them two repeated actions that are meant to shape them in this passage. Two uh, different actions that he sets up. So Exodus 13, 4 and 5. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So, so here we see kind of the function of creating cultural muscle memory, the, the function of the call to remember, because Yahweh, he actually has a purpose for these people. They are going into a land. They are going to take that land. And, and as they go into that land, it's going to be in the middle of a bunch of pagan nations who are worshiping pagan gods, and they're going to be sacrificing their kids to these pagan deities. They're going to be oppressing people. They're going to, there's going to be corruption running rampant in this place that they go to, and in the middle of this land, there are going to be hard battles to fight. In the, in the Canaanites, with the Canaanites and the, the, the Hivites, the Amorites, all of these people, they're going to be hard battles to fight, and there's going to be incredible temptation for them to stray away from the things that God has called them to, and many of the things that they encounter, they're going to take their focus off of their rescuer. So you know what? Israel has this really hopeful future, but that future does not come without its own set of challenges. And so who they are when they meet these challenges really matters. Like who they are shaped to become when they get into the middle of this land is important. Like what will their knee-jerk responses be when they encounter these things? Will trusting God be naturally wired into them? Will pursuit of faithfulness be seen as a thing that is valuable at all times for them? 
You know, all of these questions are things to process. Will even their national structures and systems be able to endure the things that they encounter? Will they remember who God is? Because what they remember about God is going to be incredibly important for them as they go and take this purpose that the Lord has for them. So verses 6 and 7, 7 days. You shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Do you think they get the point? Like unleavened, no leaven, unleavened, no leaven. So how appropriate it is like, that the very first action, the re- very first repeated action that Israel sets up is an action based around the food that they eat. Like, so, so think about this for a second. Like, I mean, I, I ask you, what are your family traditions at such and such a holiday? The first thing that you're going to tell me about is what kind of food you eat at that holiday, right? Because that is like just these traditions that you build around food. There, there's something powerful about relating to people across a dinner table from each other. And, and the food that you have, like it engages all of your senses and, and all of these things combine together to create this repeated experience that you have. There's something powerful in these meals, right? So I'll tell you a story about food for me. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to spend every morning with my grandmother and, uh, and my grandmother and my grandfather at their house before I would go to school. And about once every three months, my, my grandmother would make uh, sweet, uh, sweet pecan rolls or, or uh, caramel pecan rolls. Uh, they were really, really good. So here's the, we actually have a picture of these rolls, I believe. Uh, maybe. Maybe we don't. Oh, okay. No worries. No worries. So, so anyway, I was going to entice you with the picture and make you like make your mouth water while I was up here talking. <laughs> you just imagine it. Just imagine it. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so she would make these rolls, and I, I would spend every morning there, and then every three months she would do this, and and you know what? Every time I would have these, you know, and uh, just like so good, so mouth watering, right? All of these things. But now. If I eat sweet, like, caramel pecan rolls today, I think immediately. Like, I cannot get past it. I think of the relationship that I had with my grandmother. Like, I can't, every time I eat this thing, which is so weird that food would spark this memory inside of me, but every time I eat this thing, it makes me think of the relationship that I had built with my grandmother. And it makes me think, this is not nearly as good as what she used to make, right? Like that's also the, so all of those things go into my head. And the point is this, memories around food have the, the, a very powerful ability to shape our memories. So this is especially, like you get especially uh, this unique food of unleavened bread. Like when else are you going to eat unleavened bread? Like who has any reason to eat unleavened bread? But, but it's, this is a very uncommon thing, and the meal actually would have stood out in the Israelite mind. So, so they didn't, uh, this unleavened idea, it was the idea that they don't have time for the dough to rise. They have to move quickly because the Lord acted swiftly to save them. And so they're, they're going to eat this meal every year, again and again and again. So uh, verse 8 says this, You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So, so the uniqueness of this meal, the repetition of, of this act, it's going to naturally create questions in your kid's head. Like as you practice this, your kids are going to watch you practice this and they're going to have these questions that rise up. Your kids are going to wonder, why in the world would we eat unleavened bread? 
Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we do this? And, and so you need to actually, it's saying, parents, you need to be prepared to help your kids understand why you do this. Like, what's interesting here is it's not just like some sort of repetitive religious action done to appease God, right? Which is how most of the ancient Near East works when they think about the, their repeated actions. They're done to appease some kind of God. But that's not what's happening here. It's fully expected that, that this regular action comes with an explanation to it. Like, this is why you do this. The action and the meaning of the action are actually tied really, really closely together. And so every year, when it comes time to eat the unleavened bread, every Israelite is going to wire this truth into their cognitive muscle memory. Overnight, Yahweh changed my status from slave to citizen. Overnight, Yahweh changed my status from slave to citizen. And this is why you keep seeing the phrase over and over and over again. With a mighty hand, the Lord saved Israel. With a strong hand, the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And all of this stuff, it keeps getting repeated because the idea is that truth is going to get tied to this repeated action, the swiftness of the action, how fast it happened, how strong the Lord was when when he did it. It's all going to get tied to this action of eating the unleavened bread. The Israelite practiced this meal so that each Israelite, as individuals, not just them as a nation, but each of them as individuals, could take ownership of this memory for themselves. So verse 19, or sorry, verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So, when you eat this meal, you're going you're gonna to hold the bread in your hand. And when you hold it in your hand, it'll be like a sign to you on your hand. You're gonna, and then you're going to bring it up, and you, you're actually going to see it with your eyes. It's going to be between your eyes. And you know what you're going to do after that? You're going to eat it. You're going to put it in your mouth. And this thing that the Lord commanded you to do all the way back, all the way back when the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt, this thing is going to, the law of the Lord is going to be in your mouth. And it's all, all of these actions, they're going to memorialize for you exactly what the Lord has done, not just for your people, but for you. So what you memorialize shapes who you become. Okay, so now that we've looked at this first action real quick, I want to, I want to evaluate what it is that we're doing when we memorialize something. So I want to understand the action real quick. So to memorialize, I want to give us a a definition here. To memorialize is to establish something around an important event or idea that does two things. It reminds me and it tells others. So, So again, to memorialize is this. It is to establish something around an important event or idea that reminds me and tells others. That's the two things that it does. So, so these repeated actions, they keep bringing the idea, right? The idea of God's salvation of Israel. Every time I eat the unleavened bread, it brings the idea to the forefront of my mind, into my focus. And so it's, it's forming my memory. And in this case, it's about the Yahweh is the powerful God who saved me. Like, that's the thing I keep remembering. But at the same time, when I memorialize something, it's not just me that sees what I'm doing. There are people around me who witness what I'm doing, right? So when I, when I take the act, people look at me doing the act, and they're like, oh, what's happening there? Like, they ask questions about why they would do this. These actions actually serve as a proclamation, they serve to say something to other people about who God is. So, so you know what? 
there are other actions that we have. The unleavened bread is that action. But what about us? Like, we have actions, right? We set aside Sunday morning for worship. That is a really unusual action in our culture. There are plenty, like, you could sleep in on Sunday morning. You could, uh, you could uh, spend all night out on Saturday night, you know, that sort of thing. And you don't have to, you don't have to come in. You could, you could spend time doing yard work on Sunday morning, right? Like there, there are a host of things that you could be doing instead of being here in church. But, but when you set aside that time in your schedule, it says something about what you are memorializing. And people look at that. People recognize that. You know, if you have regular patterns of prayer and Bible reading in your life, people look at those, and those mean something. Those actions say something about who you are. If you reach out to and just get to know your neighbors, do you know how many people in the suburbs don't reach out to and get to know their neighbors? That is a really unusual thing that you might do, that people go, huh, I wonder what's going on there. So for the Israelites, these things that they did, they would shape their memory, but they would also proclaim something to their kids, to the, the people who were watching and who observe their actions. So, uh, passage goes on. Moses establishes one more repeated action. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. So, so for this, action, the, this the next action, he kind of goes the same pattern. He's like, hey, remember, you have a purpose that you are set apart for. You have a place that you're going, and that place is going to be challenging. There are going to be hard things ahead of you, and so who you are is important. So verse 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So the Israelites, they have this um, unique responsibility. So while in ancient Near Eastern culture, typically the firstborn existed for you, for your family. And we talked about this a little bit last week. The, 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 the firstborn existed to manage your estate. The firstborn existed to take care of you when you were ill, these sorts of things. Like this is what the firstborn was for. But, but now the Lord is establishing a different pattern that the firstborn is for me. The firstborn is set apart towards me. And so it says here, every firstborn male was to be given for sacrifice. Set apart to the Lord. So, so in Israelite culture, the firstborn, it, it, it exists for the Lord. And verse 13 expands on this. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn a man of man among your sons, redeem. So the Israelites, they're, they're called to this repeated action of setting the firstborn apart. And they have two exceptions. And that setting the firstborn apart, I want to be really clear about what that means. In this case, we're talking about the sacrifice of the firstborn. So the sacrifice of their livestock for the Lord. When they set it apart to the Lord, this is what they are doing. There are two exceptions. The donkeys and the human beings. So what's happening with the, the donkeys? The donkeys are unclean animals. So, uh, so we don't know this yet. Like, this is not set up for us in the passage. It comes later on. But as they plunder the Egyptians, as they make their way out of Egypt, they kind of get the things that come with Egypt. And one of those things are donkeys. And donkeys are really useful to the Israelites as they try to make their way through the desert. They're, they're carrying their stuff. All of this is going on. But there's a problem. Donkeys are unclean animals. Therefore, they are not an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. So the Lord gives them an option. The first one of the donkey, you, have, you can either kill the donkey, or you kill a lamb to keep the donkey. That's how that works. But then, human beings, like you can't, like the Lord, you can't sacrifice human beings. Like that's kind of just one of the things that is set up, and that makes sense, right? So 
they need to still honor the action of setting apart the firstborn. So what do they do? They substitute a lamb in the place of their firstborn sons. They put a lamb in the place of their firstborn sons, and that lamb will be killed so that their firstborn sons do not need to be killed. This is what the word redeem means. You're going to exchange one thing for another thing. So this repeated action, it actually should consistently take the minds of the Israelites as they practice it in every single generation. It should take their minds back to what the Lord did at Passover when they killed a lamb to escape God's judgment on the firstborn. So, uh, verse 14. When in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So this is what it's saying. It's saying, hey, you know, uh, you ask me why. Uh, back when Yahweh saved us, this is what happened. He killed the firstborn, but he made a way out for us. He actually made it possible for us to not have to face that judgment. He let us kill a lamb in the place of our firstborn. If we killed the lamb and we put its blood over the doorposts, we could be saved. And that was the event that actually moved us out of the land of Egypt. And so this repeated action, every time that there was a firstborn in the family, they would do this repeated action, whether it was the livestock or whether it was the kids, it didn't matter. Every single time they did this action to solidify, to wire this truth inside the muscle memory of the Israelites. Yahweh judged sin, but he offered a substitute. He actually offered a substitute. He gave us an opportunity to escape that judgment. So, yes, I sacrifice all the males of my firstborn. And it reminds me every time I do it of the wages of sin. But in place of my firstborn son, I sacrifice a lamb. And it reminds me that Yahweh graciously did not make my family pay those wages. And this is, why, like, this is why we take communion as often as we are able to. This is a, like a weird season in COVID-19. <laughs> but uh, this, we do this practice as often as we are able because it reminds us of the wages of sin. It reminds us that as a substitute in our place, Jesus died. The Lamb of God died. God sacrificed his firstborn so that we might not have to pay sin's wages. That thought process carries all the way through Israel, all the way up to Christ, and now it carries to us. So verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the practice of these things... This is what it means. It says, as a mark on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes. You know, there were some Jews who actually would, like, literally put a band around their head with a, a little box on it, and then you could open that box and pull out, like, a little passage of Scripture, and that was, like, that was how they observed this. But, but it's not actually telling you to literally do those things. It's saying, when you repeat this practice over and over and over again, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like this ring that I wear on my finger. 
Every time I look at this ring, I am reminded of the connection that I have to my wife, of the deep connection that we have. That ring is a circle, right, to, to remind us of the unbroken bond that exists. And, and not only does that remind me of something, right, but when I go somewhere, other people see this ring. This ring is a memorial of the fact that I am joined to my wife. That's what this ring represents every time you do this, these practices, especially this practice of the firstborn. Every time you do this, it's going to be like a mark on your hand. It's going to be like frontlets between your eyes. Every time you do these things, they will be to you a memorial. And they won't just be for you, but they will be for those who are watching you. So, Alliance Bible Church, what you need to remember this morning... What you need to wire into your cognitive muscle memory. What you memorialize shapes who you become. For Israel, their cognitive muscle memory was saying, you know, we were slaves in Egypt, but now God has set us free. For us, what we wire into our cognitive muscle memory, we were slaves to sin. We were under judgment of God's uh, wrath against sin, but God set us free. God set us free from sin. So what you memorialize shapes who you become. So what? Number one, your regular spiritual rhythms shape you for the future. Your regular spiritual rhythms shape you for the future. So, so I, I engaged with some research probably about three years ago now that indicated millennials especially. So millennials, we're all going like, to go after us for a second. Uh, millennials especially have this problem where we are particularly afraid of legalism. Uh, we don't want anything that, that tastes of legalism. And so when you say every morning you need to open your Bible and read God's word, we go, oh, well, let's not get too legalistic about that, right? That's kind of like our knee-jerk reaction to that thought process. So, so we fail, actually, like millennials as a generation in the church, actually fail to establish habits because we saw some things in the church that, that kind of looked like people were just checking the box. Like, people did things, and they did the repeated patterns, but to us, it looked like checking the box. And so, so we don't actually strive to engage any practices at all. And so, heads up for anyone who, um, you know, who's neglecting regular daily patterns of, of Bible reading and prayer, uh, weekly patterns of church attendance instead of just going when it's convenient or desirable. Anybody who's neglecting regular patterns of giving, like what we are neglecting is not just like a checking the box sort of thing because it's not just checking the box, but we are actually neglecting God shaping us into the people that he desires us to be. Every time we refuse to do those actions, we are saying, yeah, I don't need God's formation. Like, fundamentally, we are telling him, hey, it's not important who you want me to become. And so this is not just about doing an action, but it is about the Lord using these actions to shape us into the people that he desires us to be. So, so part of the reason that we practice these things is um, we wire holy responses into our cognitive muscle memory. Every time we set these actions aside, we learn things and we wire into our kind of the, uh, encounter, into our natural reactions. We wire truths like, Jesus served me, so I serve his people. We wire truths like, you know what, without the resurrection, I'm hopeless. So you know what I do on Sunday morning, the day that Jesus rose from the dead? I gather with my church to celebrate the resurrection. It's not just an action that I do, but it wires a particular response into me. 
You know what? God gave me everything I have anyway, so I have no problem giving what he gave me away. God wants me, you know, a sinful human being, to know him. And so you know what? If God wants me, a sinful human being, to know him, I read his word daily. And every time I read his word, it solidifies this truth that God wants me, a sinful human being, to know him. And so I seek him even further. All of this stuff gets uh, wired into the natural muscle memory of our minds. These things actually determine, when we do them, how effectively we will be able to fulfill the purpose that God has for us in the future. So number two. Number two is this, always come back to why. So if you disconnect the action from the regular, intentional reminder of the explanation for the action, then what you get left with is empty ritual. Like these things do nothing for you except help you feel more self-righteous. If you disconnect the action from the explanation, if you disconnect things from the why. So this is what Israel ended up doing, by the way, with these actions and several other actions that they were called to do. These were actions that were actually like they were supposed to be formational for Israel, to prepare a nation for the coming of the Messiah. And, And Israel divorced the actions from their explanation, and it ended up not letting them do anything to them except become empty actions. So Isaiah 1, 13 and 14, this is God's response to that. It says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Our actions, the things that we do, the things that the Lord calls us to, they're not to be divorced from the reason that he gave us those actions. So this is why, you know, every time we take communion as a church, we actually explain communion again, and we explain it again, and we explain it again. And you might get tired of us spending three to five minutes to explain it every single time, but we explain it every single time because we are not just doing an action. We are not just doing a vain action, but we were actually like trying to build into our cognitive muscle memory as God's people the kind of ways that he wants us to respond, the kind of people that he desires us to be. So um, we all have a question to answer this morning. How is God going to shape you into the kind of person that he desires you to be in the future? Like, how is God going to shape you into whatever purpose that he has for your future? I can promise you it will not happen without him reshaping your cognitive muscle memory and engaging in practices and habits that actually help you to remember exactly who he is, exactly who you belong to, and exactly what it is that he has done for you. So Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we engage your word, as we look at it, at what it is that you've actually accomplished, we're looking at, yeah, what you did for the Israelites, but all of these things draw our attention to what it is that you've done for us. Lord, may we not be too quick to neglect the actions. 
Not, not, not to perform them out of uh, a sense of checking the box, out of a sense of getting it done, but recognizing that without them, we are hopeless to become the people that you desire us to be. So, Lord, if that's true, I ask that you would draw our attention to the amazing things that it is that you have done for us. What it is that you've actually accomplished for us. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you, being rich in mercy, gave your only son that you might set us free from sin's slavery, that you might give us the promise of life when all that we had to face was death. These are amazing things that we have been promised. And Lord, those promises lead us to being shaped into the people that you desire us to be. Lord, you've given us a calling. You've given us a responsibility. We are in the middle of a place that needs to understand who you are. And this, this, this calling that you've given us is wrought with challenges. And so, Lord, if we are to actually fulfill that purpose, Lord, you need to shape us. So, Lord, would you shape us into the people you desire us to be? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please rise with us?